All right. Well, good evening. We're happy you guys are able to join us tonight. And those of you that are watching online, you're going to be able to just have a really cool time tonight worshiping God and, and, and cool, I mean, in every aspect because we are in the air conditioned. Praise well, let God. me pray for our time yeah, as we get ready to worship the Lord and just take a pause for the day. God, we uh, thank you for your mercy and your grace. It's new every day. And, and we are just so blessed to be able to experience that mercy and grace. Lord, we come before you and ask that you help us to set aside the cares and concerns of the day, the things that are going on in our life that could be a distraction. We want to sit at your feet, Lord Jesus, much like Mary. We want to be able to see your face, worship you. Lord, we know that uh, there might be some sin in the way or just anxiety. We want to cast all these cares upon you because you care for us. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Holy Spirit, we surrender our hearts to you. May you enhance our praise and our worship. And may our, our prayers and our worship ascend to heaven like smoke, a sweet a sweet incense that would just bless you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. 
Bye.
so much for coming into this house to worship and letting us gather together in your name and just lift up your name. God, just open up our hearts and prepare us for the message. Pastor Karen, and just be with us as we're receptive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All the time. We are blessed. If you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 2. As we continue our journey through the Bible and taking a look at the miracles and the ministry that Jesus is doing. is John is writing for a reason why we should believe. To be able to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We're picking up in John 2 and it's beginning a series of, of statements that is known as the Cana cycle. Whereas John, he doesn't try to cover everything that Jesus did. In fact, he has given us these things so that we could believe, but there are many more things that John could have written, but he didn't. He wanted to really narrow in on the testimony and and why we should believe in Jesus. And so as he is starting to talk about the signs that prove that Jesus is the Son of God, he, as I said, starts what's called the Cana cycle. And it's the Cana cycle because the ministry that Jesus starts in and the, the first uh, miracle that he does is in Cana at the marriage, uh, at the, the wedding feast that he does. But he's going to go from Cana through Capernaum down to Jerusalem into Judea, back up through Samaria, and then back up to Cana. So it's a big cycle, it's just a big circle as John is going to uh, give to us over the next few weeks the things that he's going to be teaching and and the things that we need to be aware of. For John, it's significant because these these miracles are really close to home. How many of you have friends and family that are not Christians? Most of us do. It is really, really hard to witness to family, isn't it? One of the difficulties in witnessing to family is they've been around you for a long time. And they knew who you were before saved. And so within this, Jesus is starting his ministry close to home and he'll move further away. But he is revealing to all of these that he is the son of God. He's going to use seven different signs, seven different pointers. When we think about a sign, a sign tells us where we're going, tells us how long it takes to get there. And, And so John is laying out strategically the signs in his gospel that point towards Jesus as being the Son of God. So when you get to the end of John's gospel, then you'll have arrived at a place where you should have enough evidence to be able to accept Jesus as the Son of God. Through the signs and the miracles and the teachings that will be going on, he wants everyone that reads his gospel to have the, the knowledge and the ability to believe in Jesus as the Son of God and be saved. That's why the Gospel of John is such a, a powerful gospel to start with when you're discipling somebody. And we're going to be talking a whole lot more about that on Sunday, so you don't want to miss Sunday, on, on the importance of discipleship and those things. So let's jump right into it in John chapter 1. The first part, or the first sign, is this, this wedding feast in Cana. And... He's going to be unpacking it here. He says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when their wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. 
And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And as Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he, saw, and he said to them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants knew who had drawn the water, they knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poorest wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of his signs. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So we pick up this, and the first thing that is interesting about this is the third day. Now, John is really good about trying to lay out clues. When you think about the third day, what do you think about? Resurrection, right? Because he would use that phrase throughout his gospel. And the third day Jesus rose, and you will know, and Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. And so it was three days. John didn't have to mention it, but he does. He does because he's weaving this tapestry that's in there in order to believe. And so the number is the number of days after Nathaniel. And if you remember that Nathaniel was from Cana. And he had this perspective, and he said to Jesus, has anything good come out of Nazareth? Because if you were to look on a map, Nazareth and Canaan are pretty close together. It'd be kind of like St. Helens and Scapoose. And so you say, well, you know, I'm from St. Helens. And, and somebody could say, well, you know, you're from Scapoose. Can anything good? And, and there's this rivalry that was going on within this. And so with, within this, John is setting up all of these events, and... One of the first events, I think, is important because he does something transformational. Transformational. He's going to turn water into wine. Now, if you're going to believe that Jesus has the power to transform lives, if you're going to believe that Jesus has the power to save lives, then why not start with the first miracle that Jesus does and the transformational affect of the water going to become wine? And not just any wine, but good wine. Within this. Now, we don't know who it was. We, we think mostly it was probably a relative. Weddings are a part of, of the Jewish culture, just like funerals. And in the Near Eastern culture, they're big deals. We go to a wedding and we might show up and sit there for, you know, a little bit of time while they do the ceremony. I've been to weddings that have been as short as seven minutes. And I've been to some weddings, uh, especially if you've ever been to a Catholic wedding, they've been really long. And then there's the reception afterwards. And it could be, you know, somewhat of an all-day event. Not in Jewish culture. It could be up to seven days. You imagine going to a wedding. You're going on vacation. It's seven days. And, and there's a whole processional that's all part of it. The wedding feast. The bridegroom goes with the, the, the entourage and they go to the bride's house and they take the bride and they bring them back to the bridegroom's house and they have what they do. And then they have the, the party afterwards for seven days. So it's a big deal. If you're going to a wedding, you're, you're gone for a while. 
You're gone for days. And, and they, it's a big deal, just as the funerals and these other things. One of the things this, this tells us is that Jesus lived a very normal life. He was a carpenter by trade. He lived in Nazareth. He was with his mom. What, do you don't, what did you not hear in the narrative? The mention of Joseph. It's by best recollection they think that Joseph is off scene right now. We don't know what happened to Joseph. There's, there is great speculation that he died, but he's just not mentioned anymore. Now we look at this, this wedding piece that took place in Canaan, as I said. It's only nine miles from Nazareth, so you know it's, it, it's, it's not that far away. It would be a little bit more than walking from here to, to St. Helens or so, or, or St. Helens' Capoose. You know, a little bit more than that. And they would go and they would spend all day. And we see Mary there. But Mary's a little bit more invested in this wedding than just a guest. And so within this, she's invested because when the wine runs out, she goes and she gets her son. Now, it's interesting also to me the fact that the focus is really on Jesus. And it's not on Mary. It's not on Joseph. It's not what happened to Joseph and what Jesus does. Notice else also in, in verse 2, it says, Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding. We know the disciples were probably Andrew, Simon, uh, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, as mentioned previously. So he's, he's got four of them with him. And they're watching. They're learning. They're learning from him, and they all go to this wedding feast within this. And then the crisis takes place. What's the crisis? No more wine you imagine? You've got, and we're not told what day it was, but it, it, it must have been in day one or day two or, or early on in, the, in there. And because they had already had enough of the wine and they probably thought that they had, whether they had more guests or, or we don't know. But within this, they ran out. Now, could you imagine hosting this and going to your guests, we have no more wine? And, and it's not like they could run down to the store. Wine had to be gathered together and, and made up that was within this. And it would have taken this, this wine days to put together, especially for them. And it says literally when the wine failed. Now, this is the drink that if you're not drinking wine, you're drinking water. And what kind of party is it? Just drinking water. Not very much so. And so you say, well, that's a lot of wine. Well... You've got to understand that, that biblical wine is not like our wine today. They had this condition, it was called new wine. And what new wine is, is when they would take the grapes and they would, they would mash the grapes, they, you know, they would take them out and then they would stomp all the grapes and then the juice would run out and they would gather it up and they would bag it. It would start fermenting. They didn't have a refrigeration system. So typically what they would do is they would take this, this grape juice and then they would boil it down to like a syrup. It would last longer. And then they would take that syrup and they would keep it and then they would mix the syrup with water to be able to make their wine. The new wine, no one would drink. You were considered a barbarian if you drank the new wine. It had a high alcohol content. In fact, it's, it's thought that the alcohol content was was upwards to 30%. Yeah. Can you imagine going seven days on 30% alcohol content on wine? No. 
So what they would do is they would make the syrup and then they would, they would add it to the water and it would be more like Kool-Aid. And so it would drop the percentage down below 10%. And so they would be able to do that. So they could, they could be able to do that. In fact, in Timothy, one of the qualifications of elders is the qualification says in 1 Timothy 3, not given too much wine, not literally lingering long over wine. Because what would happen? Well, you would have to linger long over wine to get loaded, to get drunk. So it was okay to have the table wine, to be able to drink this table wine at this low alcohol content. That's there. But if, if you were drinking the other stuff, then that wasn't good. At any rate, they ran out of this wine. And Mary, who was part of the, the process, comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. That's all she says. Interesting. What's implied in that? They, they have no wine. Fix it. Now, is she asking Jesus to do a miracle? What birth order is Jesus? Did Jesus have brothers and sisters? Yes. But Jesus in the birth order is what? The first or the oldest. And if he's in that senior position and Joseph isn't on scene, she says, as a, a, a biblical woman would, working inside, going out to the man of the house, I got a problem, I need your help. To be able to do this. To be able to fix this. She presents the problem. She doesn't tell Jesus what to do. There are some faith systems that will say at this point, Mary is bossing Jesus around. She's not. There are some faith systems that will say, if you want Jesus to do something, you've got to pray to Mary in order to get Jesus to do something. Is that true? No. But they use this as a proof text for that. It is not. She's presenting her problem to her oldest son. But now we have a glimmer of Jesus' deity. And he says to her, woman, what do I... What does that have to do with us? I can tell you this. If my mom asked me to do something and came to me and said, Carrie, I need your help with this. And I said, woman? <laughs> I'd have to remove my head out of the wall. Because that's where it would end up. We, we, we look at this and we go, man, that's pretty tough. It's really not it, it was really just a statement. It, it wasn't dismissive. Um, it, it's used here with respect. He's not being dismissive. He's just acknowledging the fact. What do you want me to do about this? Uh, why are you involving me in this? My hour has not yet come. Now, does Mary know that Jesus is the Son of God? Sure. But Jesus is creating a margin or a boundary when and where he is going to demonstrate his deity within this. And so in saying this, Jesus is just saying, look it, it's really not my time to do this. One other time Jesus will use this term. That tells us it's not a derogatory or dismissive. In John chapter 19, verse 26, at the cross, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which would be John, 
standing near, and he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. So we know that Jesus wasn't being dismissive in this, in this way. But he is separating this title in, in, in his name. Now, the question is, so what was the, why the initial resistance? Why did Jesus say, what does this have to do with me? Question, did Jesus intend on turning water to wine? Sure he did. Sure he did. But he makes the statement because he is going to bring out a, a prophetic statement. And what is the prophetic statement? My what? Hour has not come. There's a lot of things that have to happen before this complete revelation. This hour. He uses this hour later on in John chapter 12, verse 23. And he said to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He used it again also in 1227. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour for the purpose I came to this hour. There was a distinct time when the complete revelation was to be made known. So what does Jesus do? Empathetically, he will do this miracle. But he's not going to make a big deal out of it. He's not going to say, hey, everybody look at me. I'm going to do this miracle and I, so that everybody will believe. He's going to set the first signpost. He's going to set down the first sign. For who? For the crowd at the wedding? For his mother? No. For the disciples. The disciples that are present there. He's going to establish the first sign for them. It's interesting that, that so many times people try to make miracles the big deal. They're not. Miracles are just signposts or demonstrations within Scripture to point towards the deity of God. We should never chase miracles as the end all. They demonstrate the power unto God so that God would be glorified. The ultimate revelation of Jesus is going to be at the cross and at the resurrection within that. So, his mother, Mary, says in verse 5 to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, what does that tell us? <laughs> I know my son. He's going to do something. Now, what is he going to do? She didn't know, but she was just, she gave him the problem. And I love this. Because she doesn't dictate to him, hey, I want you to do a miracle right now. I just need your help. Whatever, he, he's in charge. Which I think is, is so important, because Mary understands Jesus' words. She understands his miraculous birth, his statement as a young boy in the temple. She understands all these things back. And the beauty is this. There was a crisis. She handed it over and she stepped back and said, whatever you want to do. Servants, whatever he says, do, just do. Do we do that when we get into a crisis, when we pray? When we make a request, no? Or do we... Try to be prescriptive and tell God what to do. We should not be prescriptive and say, God, this is what I want you to do and this is how I want you to fix it. 
I think it's imperative to understand the fact that Jesus does not work for Mary, nor does He work for us. But can we bring our cares and concerns to Him? Yes. Yeah, we can cast all our cares on Him because He cares for us. And so in verses 6-10, through we see this, this sign that Jesus intervenes. But he intervenes specifically to prove his authority to his disciples. Notice what he does. He says, now there were six stone jar water pots that were there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now these six stone jars that, that are holding 20 to 30 gallons. So if you think about a 55-gallon barrel that's probably like this tall and that big around, these would have been, you know, like half of that. But they were stone jars. They weren't clay jars. They were stone jars, which means they were chiseled out of limestone. And they would hold water. What was the water there for? Purification. Why? Because in the Jewish culture, you had to wash before you ate. When you came in from the outside, you would wash. When we go to Israel, one of the really cool things that that blew my mind, and I really like cool stuff when we go there, is they have this cup. It's got two handles. And it's in the bathrooms, right? So it's got two handles on one on each side. And I look at it and it's like, well, what is that for? And I'm like this stupid American that's standing in the bathroom trying to figure out what's going on while, you know, they're coming in and washing. And so they would turn the water on. They would take the handle with one hand, right? Fill it up and then they would pour it over the hand. This hand is now clean. And then they would take the other handle, fill it up, and they would pour the water over this hand, Right? And then they would take the cup and then turn off the water (laughs) within that. Because they would have to wash their hands before they eat. Because anything that was unclean, or if they touch anything unclean, and then they eat, what happens? It goes in their mouth. Now, is it about cleanliness or ceremonial cleanliness? Ceremonial cleanliness. So they would come in, and if they were in there, they would take their hands, and they would put them in, or they would take the cups and they would pour them down. But the whole idea was to, to rinse. So in our culture today, imagine it is like a filling up the bathroom sink. He says, I want you to fill these up. Now, they fill them all up and they have a lot of water that's in them. The total would be anywhere between 120 to 180 gallons of water by the time you figure out the math and and fill it all up. So he tells them, go fill it up with water within this. And Jesus says, now fill the water pots with water, verse 7. They filled them to the brim. Then he said, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Now, again, as, as I said, these purification jars were mandated by law. You can read about it in Leviticus 11. But within this, one of the things that's interesting, and you've got to get the picture. The picture is this. This is a ceremonial thing of the law of washing and cleansing, household item. And Jesus takes this ceremonial cleansing thing and repurposes it to be full of wine. And wine is always a type of joy. One of the signs that Jesus brings is the fact that He has come to fulfill the law. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, says, Don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill them. The ceremonial washing would be important, but what's even more important? Joy. 
that your joy would be full within this. What else is important? If you remember one of the plagues that Moses did when he went to Egypt, he turned water into something. The Nile River. Do you remember what that was? And all the water was there? It turned it into what? Blood. The ability to transform water into blood was an act of a prophet. Jesus turns water to wine. What would that trigger in the Jewish mindset? That he is a prophet. But more than a prophet. He is the Son of God. And then, you imagine being the, the servants. They've gone and they've gone buckets and buckets and buckets and filled up all of these things. And they, and they get them all filled up. He says, now draw some out and take it to the table waiter. Take it to the head waiter. Can you imagine being that servant? You want me to what? You want me to bring my boss a, a, some of the water that we just put in there? And can you imagine them drawing it out? And they just put water in. And now it's wine. Full of wine. Taking it to the table, or to the, the head waiter, to be able to do that. John does a really good job with a parenthetical statement. The parenthetical statement says that only the servants knew that water went in and wine came out. The disciples were watching. The servants saw this, but he didn't make a big deal for everybody else. And I think it's important for us to understand that this term drawing out is this idea of, of, of bringing out this, this joy. Jesus turned a situation that was a crisis into a joyful situation. He resolved the crisis that was there. And nobody really knew about it except for the, the, the servants that were there. And he made water into wine. Now, mind you, this is not a proof text for drinking. <laughs> this is not, if, if you talk with somebody and you say, you know, alcoholism not good. Probably shouldn't drink too much and, and all these things. Well, you know what? Jesus turned, turned water into wine. It must be okay. I had friends growing up that used to say that about pot. God created all the herbs of the earth. Therefore, it must be good because pot's an herb. God made cockroaches too. Don't try to smoke them. We look at this. It is, it is not a proof text with that. But it really is talking about something that is norm, a normal element of life. Normal. This is what they did. This was normal. And Jesus resolved the crisis. And the main thing, and don't miss the main point. It's not even about the wine. It's about the transformation. Something that was all part of the law. It was changed. And he has authority to do that. He has the authority to transform something that was a nothing into a blessing. Think about that. Something that was a nothing got turned into a blessing. And we can trust in God for that. And that was the first miracle that, that he did. The first sign revealing his power. Notice in verse 11, he says, this is the beginning of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Why? 
to manifest his glory and his disciples what? Believed in him. Who was the miracle done for? The disciples. Why? Because they're beginning their journey of following after Jesus and learning who Jesus is to unpack this mystery. It was a sign to point towards Jesus. The other thing that I think is very interesting about his first miracle with the disciples at this wedding feast, that there is going to be another wedding feast that we are all going to participate in. If you remember at the Last Supper when Jesus raised his glass and celebrated what we now call communion, he says, and I will no longer drink of the fruit of this vine until we are all gathered in the kingdom. And the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus will raise that glass again. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Here we have what's called an inclusio, bracketing. Jesus started his revelation to the disciples at a wedding feast, and it will be completely concluded to the followers at the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a blessing that is to think about that, that action that he does. And pointing to His glory. Notice, manifest His glory. When are we going to see the glory of God? The word there is kabod. It really means this manifestation. In John 1.14, and we covered it a couple weeks ago, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The disciples get their first picture of His glory. John could write about his glory. Why? Because they saw it. The kabod, this holiness, this power. It's amazing to be able to see that. And they saw the signs and believed. What a very simple faith. To believe the signs in, 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 that are there. Does that mean that they were saved at that point? No. But they believed that they were on the right road. That they believed that they were following the right person. Their faith was this, this little seed that was beginning to be transformative as a little baby and child of God. And Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he should be the firstborn among many brethren. It's the revelation. Question. What was the first thing that... that turned you to entertain the thought that Jesus truly is the Son of God? How did God first reveal Himself to you? Can you remember that? What was the first thing where you looked at it and you said, there's something there. That is the revelation, the apocalypse that Jesus is doing. And He does something very simple in an everyday event. Can Jesus use everyday events Something very simple to reveal His glory. Look at a sunrise. Look at a sunset. Go out in the middle of nowhere and look at the stars. The very creation declares His what? Glory. glory. In this there is enough of the general revelation and that's what this is about. And John is revealing this first sign to reveal the glory, God's glory, and the promise of transformation. Think about this from the disciples' standpoint. Who is this? Who is this that can do this thing? 
And I'm sure in Jesus' mind, he's like, you ain't seen nothing yet, buddy. This is only the first. There's a lot more. And so within this, John goes on with his narrative, and he moves forward to address something else that would be unbelievable. Going into the temple and cleaning house. Well, we know that it's the first Passover. We know that after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum, verse 12. And with his mother and his brothers and the disciples, and they stayed there a few days. They would end up using Capernaum, actually Peter's house. And again, if you've been to Israel with us, you can picture it right across from the synagogue. They went down there and they set up there, but they only stayed for a few days. Why? Because the Passover was coming. Had Jesus been to Jerusalem at Passover before? Yes. But this is the first time in his ministry that he's going to go as the Son of God. Within this. So they start heading down to Jerusalem. And he goes down in verses 12 and 13. Or I'm sorry, 13. He says, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found the temple and those that were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers that were all seated at the table. Now we'll pause there for a minute. Because one of the things that we've got to understand is Jesus has left his home in Nazareth, gone nine miles to Canaan, most probably went back to Nazareth, got a few things or whatever he needed to do, and then went to Capernaum, stayed there for a few days in Peter's house, and said, we've got to go to Jerusalem. Goes down into Jerusalem for the Passover that is there. After this miracle and within this, he goes down to Capernaum and up to Jerusalem. Why up to Jerusalem if it is south of Capernaum? Because whenever you speak of Jerusalem, you always go up. It's Mount Zion. And to get to the top of Mount Zion, it doesn't matter which side you come from, it's always an ascent. Why? Because you're ascending up to the hill of the Lord. In fact, if you were going, and when you go to Jerusalem, it is very common to sing and to worship and sing the psalm of ascents to be able to go up. To be able to celebrate, we, we know Psalm 122 to 134 are all psalms that they would sing. When we were on our last trip, the bus driver plugged in a, a, a tape and we were all singing as we were coming into Jerusalem. Why? Because that's what you do. Because it's a, it's a place to worship. And so within this, they're all going up to Jerusalem, again from the south, and heading up to this Passover feast. Now, why do they do that? Well, because the Passover feast is a national um, holiday. It, it is a very important holiday. In fact, it's one of the feasts that is mandated. we got the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And pilgrimages are very, very common, mandated, that you need to do it as part of your worship. It would have been held about the 14th day of Nisan, which is about the mid. They had March, April, which would be their, their months that are there. And the Passover is a, is a honoring of the Passover lamb from Exodus 12. You guys know the account, right? On the 10th plague, the angel of death would come and do what? Pass over the houses that had done what? Slain the lamb and put the blood where? On the doorposts. And in, Acts, and in Exodus, he says, and you'll do this as a memorial. So they would always celebrate the Passover there in this Passover feast, Jesus, John's gospel will have three feasts, which tells us that Jesus' ministry was about three years long. 
um, in John 2.13, John 6.4, and John 11.55. All of these times tells us that his ministry was over a three-year period. So he comes in, and you've got to picture this. Jesus is coming in. Now, granted, Jesus has been in the temple already, multiple times. Does Jesus know what's going on in the temple? Absolutely. But now he has the position and authority and purpose in order to do something about it. I can't imagine how it would have sickened him to go into his father's house and see what was going on. He comes in there, and in verse 14, he found the temple and those that were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and money changers seated at their tables. What did they turn it into? A swap meet. A swap meet. Now, this temple that was supposed to be a house of prayer became a house of greed. God established a place that the temple would be the place where man would meet with God. And God would meet with man. The first temple being built, Solomon's temple. Glorious. Glorious temple. In fact, they were saying there's nothing ever been like Solomon's temple. And within that, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. When Israel went into idolatry and, and Israel was taken captive, they destroyed it. They came out of captivity and Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. And if you remember, he rebuilt it. The interesting thing is each time it gets a little bit bigger. Zerubbabel had a rebuilt temple. And then we find Herod the Great coming on scene in 19 BC. Now, Herod the Great was a great builder. Great builder, great architect, great builder. And what he wanted to do was he, he always had to build something bigger or better, right? So what did he do? Well, he made the platform bigger. When we go today and the temple platform is as it is, it wasn't always that big. He took a lot of material, moved it over to where the Dome of the Rock, on the other side of the Dome of the Rock, and made it a flatter platform, put the steps up, uh, the southern steps, and that was where they would go, and would have a big courtyard. In fact, in Jesus' day, the temple was divided into seven courts, and the largest one in that, that temple court area. And so they had this huge courtyard, colonnades on both sides, and it turned it into a swap meet. Why? Because when the pilgrims would come, and from their pilgrimage, it was much easier to buy your stuff at the temple than to try to raise your sheep or whatever your offering was and to track it all the way down. And what they had done was they'd turn it into a racket. So say you bring your sheep. I've raised it. I'm bringing it to the Lord. This is the year that I'm going to bring it. Then it would be inspected. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not good enough for God. There's a blemish. But I'll tell you what. You've come a long way. I'll make you a deal. I'll sell you one of these over here. They're pre-inspected. They're ready to go. And it's only going to cost you double what yours is worth. Have you ever gone to a baseball game or a football game recently? Paid $15 for a hot dog? They got you. Well, it turned it into a racket. A marketplace. According to, to Numbers 7, Leviticus 5, all of these worshipers were allowed to bring their stuff. But in Deuteronomy 14, God had made the provision in order to be able to purchase what you needed at the temple later. It wasn't supposed to be a rocket. In fact, it says this, If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe 
since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand. Go to the place where the Lord, choo- Lord your God chooses, and you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God, and rejoice you and your household. What was the purpose of worship? To rejoice. It wasn't very joyful. They had taken away all the joy. The other thing that I think is important is this. Originally, all the animals were kept down in the Kidron Valley. Now it's the valley on the east side of the city that runs between that and the Mount of Olives. They were kept down there. But it was a bit inconvenient for the marketers. So let's bring them up closer to where the sacrifices are done. So they encroached that space. What else was going on? Each Israelite that was of age was to bring half a shekel to support the temple because the temple was supported by the people. The money would come in from the people and that money would go into the temple treasury. Every, Jew, every male Jew had to bring a half a shekel that was in there. It wasn't a lot. In fact, Exodus chapter 30, verse 13 says, This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, everyone 20 years of age and older, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And the shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Well, here's the problem. The problem is they had so many people and they didn't have the shekels or the right money or the right change. And by the way, they didn't have ATMs back then or debit cards. So if you came and you didn't have the right coinage, or if you had Roman coinage that had an image on it, could you use something that had an image as, as a worship? No. So you would have to exchange it. But it wasn't a one-for-one exchange. So they started charging interest within that. So the purpose of this, this offering that was meant to be fellowship, bring what you've got. Let's have a fellowship offering. Bring your sacrifice. Bring the family. Enjoy the meal. Because God would get part, you would get part, and you'd be able to enjoy that as an act of worship. It turned into a labor. And then turned it into a business. And so within this, this is what Jesus sees. In verses 15 to 17, it says, And he made a scourge of cords, drove them out of the temple with the sheep, and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, "Take these things away. Stop making them my fa- stop making my father's house a place of business." Note, and his disciples remembered that it's written, "The zeal for your house will consume me." What was the second thing that John records that Jesus does? Not only does he turn water to wine and brings joy back to an event, a family event. He cleans the temple and brings worship back to the house of God. He's restoring and transforming this place that was a marketplace back into a place of worship. He drove the merchants out and returned it back to what it should be because it was offensive. He takes the whip and drives out the the large animals and gets them out of there. Within that, pours the coins all over the ground, sets the, the, the doves go. Can you imagine all the merchants? Question, 
and, and those of you that have been in the Near East, do you think that those merchants would just stand by and let him do this? Have you ever watched anything on Near Eastern culture? They have no problem getting up into somebody's face in their business. But Jesus demands such authority when He does this, nobody says anything to Him. His divine authority is demonstrated in such a way that in this this place, and it was righteous indignation. Jesus was mad. Now, understand, this is not a license just to get mad. But he was mad over... Can you be angry over sin? Yes. But don't enter into sin when you're angry over sin. Within that. Within this, Malachi, he predicted, the prophet Malachi predicted this in Malachi 3, 1 through 3. He said, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one. For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purify silver. He will purify the sons of the Levi, which are the priests. Refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings of righteousness. If Jesus came to the churches today, the houses of worship today. Would he have to clean house? If he came to your house of worship, would he have to clean house? When we think of this, this opportunity to, to have fellowship with God, we need to come before God with pure heart and pure hands and pure thoughts. The right attitude. We, we sing often, purify my heart, but do we really mean it? Let's have clean hands and a pure heart. Do we really mean it? We think about this. And, and how bad does it have to get? It's kind of like boiling a frog. How do you boil a frog? Put them in a pot, put them in cold water, and turn the heat up slowly. And he won't hop out. The slow digression created a new cultural norm. And nobody spoke up against it. Not even the priests. Do we live in that world, in that society today? Absolutely. Where this merchandising of faith became the new cultural norm. And the Jews thought, well, this is the way that we worship because this is what we're doing. And Jesus comes in and says, absolutely not. Maybe it's time to clean house and return back to the heart of worship. Return back to that place where we should worship. What else had happened that is significant? The temple was for everyone. Not just the Jews. The courtyard that they had turned into the flea mart was supposed to be the house of prayer for Gentiles. All nations. Within that. Within this, Isaiah 56, 7, 
The prophet Isaiah says, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make for them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the people. What happened to the Jews? They said, we are going to crowd out the Gentiles and we're going to replace them with animals because we really don't care about them. And so what happened in the passivity is the people that should have had access to God no longer had access to God because they were crowded out. And the disciples saw this and they witnessed this zeal of Jesus and they remembered Psalm 69.9. For the zeal of your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those reproach have fallen upon me. And so with this, Jesus had declared basically a holy war on these people. He'll actually do this twice. He'll do this at the beginning of his ministry and at the end. I think maybe Paul had this in mind in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so within this, we know that Jesus cleansed this temple. Why? Because he desired for man to have free access to be able to worship God regardless of who they were. And we should do that. Make sure that people have access to be able to worship God. Well, what ends up happening? Well, the unbelievers, they question his authority. Look at verses 18 to 22. It says, And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us authority that for doing these things? And Jesus answered, and he said, Destroy this temple in three days, and I will raise it up. Well, the Jews then said, It took 46 years to build the temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so when he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the words that were spoken by Jesus. One of the challenges, I think, is this. that The Jews came to him and said, by what authority do you do this? Who put you in charge? Now keep in mind, what was Jesus proving? That he is the Son of God. He has authority within this. They questioned that authority. They're looking for some proof. A sign, something logical, something... He was acting very much like a prophet. Something that would authenticate that. And they demanded this sign. The Jews were always looking for a sign. And Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. Here's your sign. (laughs) When you destroy this temple, my body, we'll raise it up in three days. They were clueless. Question, did Jesus know that he was going to die on the cross? Did he know he was going to rise again three days later? And he declared it to them. But these guys were clueless because they didn't know how to read the signs. And this could only be accomplished if he was truly the Messiah. Now the disciples are watching this and they're going, he just turned water to wine. And now he's cleaning out the... the, Who does this? And just in this amazement that is there. Later on, with the, the religious leaders, he'll say in Matthew sixteen four, An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and a sign will not be given them except the sign of Jonah, and he left them away. Question. Would the religious leaders ever be satisfied with anything that Jesus did? No. 
If someone refuses to believe, it doesn't matter what you say or what you do, or how many signs you give them, they're just not going to believe. Because they refuse to believe. But those that have eyes to see and ears to hear, as Jesus would say in Revelation, will hear what the Spirit says. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Everything that you need to to know that Jesus is the Son of God has been given to us. The only proof that they're going to get is the resurrection. And they still didn't get it. The tomb is empty. Let's say the disciples stole the body. Jesus gave them prophecy. It's interesting. Because he uses a word called naos. Tear down this temple. Naos. That word naos is the word that's used to describe. In, in the temple, there was the courtyard there was the, the place of sacrifice, there was a holy place, and then the holy of holies. Naos describes the holy of holies. That was the place where God would meet with man. Destroy this temple. And, and it's called a prophetic imperative. It means you will see this, and you're still not going to get it. Acts 6.14, at, at Stephen's trial, and we read it, a while back on Sunday, he says, For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs of Moses and hand it out. No, he didn't. It took 46 years to build the temple, and it still wasn't done yet. He's going to rebuild it in three days. They weren't listening. Why? Because the natural man cannot discern spiritual things. For those that have eyes to see, and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We need to make sure our hearts are ready to receive. And Jesus is declaring that His body will rise again for the glory. And with his, it, it, it's not going to make sense to them. But notice when it made sense for the disciples. After He rose again. After he rose again. To be able to see that body, that resurrection that's there. After the tomb was empty. We have the benefit of looking backwards. We can look at that in scripture. We can go, we can see an empty tomb, we can see all of that. With this, we, I'm reminded of Thomas. Do you remember what Thomas said? I'm not going to believe until I what? See the nail prints in his hand. And then Jesus shows up a week later... I love this. Pops into the middle of the room. Hey, Thomas, come here. There you go, buddy. Falls on his knees, my Lord, my God. Blessed are you, Thomas, because you see, because you believe, because you see. But blessed are those that believe that don't see. Within that. We need to be able to take a look at Jesus and be able to believe and see. Verses 23 to 25 were challenged with a heart transformation. He says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing what? His signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, note, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, 
And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Say, well, Carrie, what does that mean? Jesus didn't entrust himself in these people that were just giving lip service. Because he knows the heart. Here's the challenge. How many people are walking around saying, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus? When they really don't believe. You see, Jesus knows your heart. And and John says he didn't entrust himself to these fake believers that were only believing in the signs. It's it's a whole summary of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. They they saw this and, and they want to believe, but they really don't. For people that only have faith that's based on miracles or prophecy or, or some experiential thing, it's a very shallow faith, and it's faith in faith. It's not faith in Jesus. What is saving faith? Is saving faith faith in faith? Or is saving faith faith in Jesus? What is it? It's faith in Jesus. If I was to ask you, do you, what do you believe? Well, I believe in Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Because what you believe about Jesus is imperative. If you have faith in faith, that's not saving faith. It's only in faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came and died on the cross for your sins. Your faith is in the fact that His death was enough to pay the penalty for your sins. Your faith is in the transformational work that Jesus is doing by the power of His Spirit within you. It's not faith in religion, faith in a church, or any of these other things that make you feel good. It's a deep faith, a holistic faith. To believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Jesus knew the heart of men. They had a very shallow faith and he wasn't entrusting themselves to them. Real faith is not believing just because you're around it. Real faith is in the quietness of your space. Home, wherever it is. You are fully convinced in your heart and your mind that Jesus is who He says He is. And you put the full weight of your being in who He is as your Lord and Savior. That is the saving faith. Jesus cleaned the temple. But the reality is Jesus is the living temple. And He is the one with whom we meet God with. He's our mediator. And we understand that. We pray to Jesus. We pray, Lord Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Connect me to the presence and the power of God as I find my life in you. Speak to my heart. Walk with me. I I love the fact that John ends this section here where he says that Jesus does not need anyone. But we need Him, don't we? Let's pray. God, we thank You that You've given to us this life. 
Jesus, we need you. We, we can't live without you. Our life is found in you. Apart from you, there is no life. You are the life giver. You are God incarnate. Lord, everything that, that we have and everything that we are comes from you because you are the breath of life to us. May we realize that every moment of every day. That there is no life apart from you. May we live our lives fully surrendered to you. And as we close with this song, may we worship God in totality. Worship Lord Jesus as the great I am. The one who has revealed himself to us. To be with us as if he was present in this room right now.
confess we are nothing without you. But in you, we are children of the Most High. We stand in the presence of the Holy One even now. Lord, we're looking forward to that day, that marriage supper of the Lamb, to be able to see the Holy Temple come down from heaven, adorned as a bride, to be able to see unveiled our God in heaven, and to be able to worship at His throne, to cast these crowns that You'll give to us as a reward back to You. Lord, may our hearts be houses of worship. May our lives be a sacrifice of praise. And may everything that we say and do put a smile on your face. We thank you and we praise you for this time. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.